0: It's Baxi's musical podcast.
1: One of the things that seems undeniably true is that music isn't just a series of notes that are strung together. It's more than just a bunch of rhythmic patterns being played on musical instruments with a bunch of lyrics meant to break things up in between guitar solos. Sometimes music is about history. It's about geography. It's about shifts in culture. It's about a lot of stuff. But more importantly, it's about individuals, many of whom would go on to be successful, but many more of them would not. But their relevance and importance over music and those that we continue to make it as well as the music scenes that they helped create, cast this enormously looming shadow that still resonates in those cities today. You know, we've all heard about the music scenes in both New York and London back in the 1970s. You've probably heard about the scenes developing in Los Angeles, Minneapolis, Athens, Georgia, Memphis, Washington, D.C., and Seattle. But those were hardly the only ones. There was also Cleveland, Ohio. In fact, so much of rock history is neatly tied to the city of Cleveland and throughout northern Ohio, but it's almost a shame that Cleveland gets such a bad rap. Often referred to for years as the mistake on the lake, this was an area of the country in which the late Alan Freed first coined the term rock and roll in the 1950s. This is a region that spawned bands like the James Gang, the Raspberries, the Electric Eels. It would then spread to cities like Akron, Ohio, which was the home of Chrissy Hine from The Pretenders, or Lux Interior from The Cramps, and Devo as well. Cleveland was also the home of a band called Rocket from the Tombs. This was an incredibly influential local band that would eventually splinter off into different groups after only being together for about a year. Specifically, guitarist Cheetah Chrome and drummer Johnny Blitz would team up with the late Stiv Baders to form one of the most quintessential New York punk bands ever, the Dead Boys. Meanwhile, Rocket from the Tombs singer David Thomas and guitarist Peter Loftner would form the legendary avant-garde master's Pier Ubu. Meanwhile, bass player Craig Bell would leave Ohio and settle in Connecticut, where he himself enjoyed a long musical career as well. And while Rocket from the Tombs never completed a debut album before breaking up in 1975, a number of their songs would become punk rock anthems for both Pier Ubu and the Dead Boys. Songs like Sonic Reducer, Ain't It Fun?, Final Solution, Life Stinks, and 30 Seconds to Tokyo, and several others. And while that story is a pretty important one, the legacy of Peter Loeffner, both before and after 1975, is one that, up until recently, has never been properly told as it deserves to be. Sadly, Peter Loeffner died in 1977 at the age of 24. And while many people might know the story behind his life, his influence on the entire music and cultural scene in Cleveland and throughout northern Ohio can never be overstated. Loftner was a poet, a music journalist, a songwriter, and a guitar player that served as an underlying presence throughout some of the most volatile times in one of the country's most misunderstood cities. A new book has been released by author and illustrator Aaron Lang from Stone Church Press entitled, Ain't That Fun? Peter Lofner and Proto-Punk in the Secret City. It's an incredible story that not only looks at the city's amazing history, it looks at the culture, the crimes, the tragedies, and neglect that Cleveland has endured for generations. Lang also looks at the life and times of Peter Lofner and the significant role he played during his brief and influential life. It's a story about a very damaged soul whose tendency toward self-destruction is both incredibly sad, but is a reflection of the city from where he came from. In previous episodes, I've spoken to both Cheetah Chrome and to Craig Bell from Rocket from the Tombs, and in those interviews, we spoke about who Peter Lothner was, but we never dove into the details of what makes him such a crucial and iconic figure in American music. Because the truth is, he really was. This is my conversation with author and illustrator Aaron Lang on Maxi's musical podcast. Thank you very much for sending the book (laughs) over. I've I am I am literally just about done reading it. I've probably got like 30, 35 pages left to go. It's really, really, you know, well done. I mean, you know, first of all, Peter Loftner is like one of those characters that kind of fits into a much larger story, but he's always a name that, you know, I always associate with Pierre Ubu and 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 others. Tell me about what was it about Peter Loftner that made you decide, I, I want to construct this story the best way I can.
0: Well, I'm from Cleveland, and I remember... You know, I was like a teenager living in suburban Cleveland. I had these very like outdated fantasies of like exciting New York. <laughs> you know, in my mind, it was still like Andy Warhol's factory and CBGBs. I didn't know who Giuliani was and what gentrification was. So you know, I wanted, I wanted to escape where I lived. This is the late 1990s, and go to New York or go to London. You know, and just Cleveland just seemed like this dull place to get out of <laughs> and then rhino records put out a collection of um post-punk music uh an anthology on cd which i bought like at the local strip mall and i was listening to that in my teenage bedroom and there's one song jumped out at me final solution mm. and i was like it's really something and i'm looking at the little booklet the little liner notes and it says these guys are from cleveland and i was like "Really?" like something really cool came out of here. And that just, I don't know, that just really had a strong impact on me. And it would be years before I learned Peter Lochner's name, but I liked per Ubu. And then when the old Rocket from the Tomb stuff got released and they uh, got back together with the surviving members, Peter's name started coming up like at parties and just like, you kind of like in always sort of these hushed tones, like, can you believe this guy? <laughs> and I just kind of developed an interest in that whole early Cleveland scene, just always well, kind of on the back burner of my mind in like my, my 20s and when I was younger. And then I just started looking into it more and more. And I was like, there's a, there's a story here. And it's been written about, but I felt like it hadn't been fully
1: told. My discovery about him is kind of like yours. I had bought the Pier U- Ubu first album, you know, Modern Dance, and I'm seeing all these you know, these attributions to to Loftner and then I start doing the podcast and I'm talking to Cheetah Chrome and I'm talking to, you know, Craig Bell and they're all talking about Peter Loftner, but there's never really been a substantial treatment of his life story and it's a really interesting one. And I think what you did in this book is, is really important because I think to get any kind of context for his story, you really have to look at you know, the history and the psychology of the city of Cleveland and also throughout northern Ohio. It, so many things affected, you know, culture in, in that town. It didn't just happen on its own. It really developed from a number of factors. And 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 you cover that in the book, I think, very, very well.
0: Yeah, to understand Peter Lochner and to understand the early Cleveland punk scene, you have to understand deindustrialization, You have to understand the distance, yet proximity to New York. You have to understand what was going on in Detroit. You have to understand uh, Penn State and the rubber factories, what was going on over in Akron. I mean, without industrialization, you don't have Perubu. And without Penn State, you don't have Devo. These things cannot be separated. So you kind of have to, let's start at the beginning. Let's talk about John D. Rockefeller and the Gilded Age and how this city became, you know, one of the major American cities, and then collapsed. And there were just these vacant warehouses for the bands to repurpose and use. And, um, yeah, you have to understand all of that.
1: It's funny. I spent uh, about a dozen years living in uh, up in Milwaukee, and I would make the trip from Massachusetts to Wisconsin, you know, pretty frequently. And every time I drove through Cleveland, you know, it's always been somewhat of an afterthought as a city and sometimes maybe even the butt of jokes. But the truth of the matter is when I've been through you, Cleveland, I think, well, this isn't so bad. And, and, and you know, it, it had been such a hub of, you know, substantial wealth and, and culture and architecture and many times over it all kind of <laughs> you know, went to shit and that's, but, and that's part of the story. I mean, it's a, it's a character in this book that's like an undeniable overseer everything that that happened
0: yeah yeah and i make no mistake i don't uh glorify the industrialists i mean their wealth was built on like fighting organized labor and their wealth was built on exploitation but we cannot deny the fact that they were also philanthropists yeah and truly 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 were and we had because of that we have cultural institutions here we have a world class art museum uh and things like that so they did leave a legacy that cannot be dismissed uh in spite of you know what they did uh to, to the unions and everything so it's very complicated so i don't well, i don't put these people on a pedestal i will acknowledge their contributions and that's what's interesting about cleveland that it is this kind of collapsed fallen place but we still have this grand architecture and these kind of ghosts of our past. And it's, it's kind of creepy. I mean, I was just walking around downtown yesterday and it's just like this ghost town, but there's these like ionic columns and this statuary and like, you'll never see a cop. There's just no police <laughs> and like the homeless people act like you're in their living room and you are, it's their turf. It's like, you got to pay the toll.
1: Well I want to get into the the Lofner story in more detail in a minute but you know the thing that I was you know, stunned by as I'm go- going through the book is especially as I'm going through all the illustrations this must have taken you forever to put together you know 428 pages different illustration on on every page and in a storyline that's incredibly detailed like I said you know you're going back into into time to really look at at Cleveland and then you get into the story of of Lofter tell me a, a little bit about what it took to put all of this into the into the form of a book
0: yeah it took years i mean the first year i wasn't even really working on it in any sense that people would imagine i was more just kind of like i just decided i was going to do this and i thought about it every day but for about a year i was just sort of immersing myself into the subject matter and just like accruing research material just like records books fanzines uh, starting to talk to people, you know, like talking to John Morton from the Electric Eels, and just kind of just getting my thoughts together and my sources together. Yeah. And I was living in Philadelphia at the time. Uh, but then my wife got a job in Cleveland. And so we moved back and I was gone for a long time. So it was kind of like good timing. And as soon as I landed back in Cleveland, I got to work. Uh, but then even like about the first year and a half of work I did, I ended up taking those pages and basically threw them in the trash and I started over. Really? I I was being sloppy. Uh, I didn't like have a full outline. I was figuring things out. So there was, yeah, it was, there were some false starts and then I got going then I'd go back and edit and editing an illustrated comic book like this is a lot different than editing a traditional, you know, book that you just write where you can just go into your Word document and add things and delete things. <laughs> you know, I don't, all that artwork's done by hand. So, if I want to change something, I have to get an exacto knife and cut it out and paste in a new part. So, yeah, it's it's very, very time consuming.
1: This is true of every music scene there's ever been in in America. You know, there's you always have this regional culture with a lot of cities, whether it's you know New York or uh, you know Chicago or l a or London for that matter and and it's very easy to think about music scenes in terms of well who was successful out of that scene but the fact of the matter is it's more often about the people that were outside of that sphere of success you know Loftner is kind of one of those guys is very very few recorded products that he that he recorded but you know his his presence in this story and throughout cleveland during the 70s is it's undeniable but to me i mean how would you describe his particular role in in that that cleveland and for for at least that decade and a half that he was active
0: that's it's it's an it's a difficult question because peter peter was a real chameleon and you get this sense in talking to different people who knew him they like he showed different sides of himself to different people and some people you'd think okay he was phony or a poser i don't think that's true he was just very complicated so peter was also you know we have this image of him as this like punk rock figure this punk rock architect and he was but he also was a folky he played on the folk circuit uh he wrote a lot of poetry you know and he was also a music critic you know he wrote for cream and he wrote for the local papers so peter was on speed he did amphetamine and he just had a lot of enthusiasm and a lot of energy so he was kind of a cheerleader for the scene and he kind of just like encouraged everybody and he wrote about the other bands and him and his wife Charlotte helped like put like get gigs together, and they knew media people, like they knew people at the uh, the major radio station. The Electric Eels did not; those guys were antisocial fuckups. So <laughs> Peter and his wife kind of they were savvy, you know, were yeah. Clevelanders at least, and they got things going.
1: When I've talked to you know, guys like like Cheetah Chrome and, and Craig Bell. You know, they all kind of say the same thing. This is an, an, a and a very intense, very dark but incredibly talented guy who was equally self-destructive too. And in, in the book you talk you know a lot of instances about where you know he's he's focused on on one thing but then the the alcohol or the or the drugs or you know whatever it may be, you know get in the way of him kind of continuing down a lane for 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 very long. It sounded like that he had just a very restless demeanor about him, always into something you know different than in in, in multiple different directions.
0: I think it was uh, his wife, his ex-wife. They did divorce. I believe she said it just wasn't happening fast enough for Peter. And some of that might have been the amphetamines and just you know his his incredible enthusiasm. But yeah, I mean it's it's amazing how much he did get done in his short life. And it's also just amazing how like brief every project was. I mean, had, had Peter Lockard lived just a year or two longer and had he stayed in Pear Ubu even just six months longer, it, w- it would be a very different story. But like, he just like flamed out so goddamn fast. It's just, it's kind of like, we, I mean, we have this sort of cultural myth about the, the rock star who dies young. Peter wasn't a rock star. He wasn't famous. And he died super young. You're supposed to get famous and then die. And, like, Peter did – I mean, he died, like uh, – I mean, he was just – as Lester Banks said, he was the first new wave casualty, new wave punk, you know, whatever. So it is kind of an
1: unprecedented
0: thing where it was just, like, so accelerated.
1: I think you're right. I think he, he lived, uh, you know, a couple more years. You know, his, his legacy probably would have been a whole lot more – well known i mean not just within ohio but beyond it you know but those that that knew him when they were no longer with him they felt like they kind of shredded something kind of important and they were kind of happy to not watch him just completely dissolve over over time it, it, you talk about you know the, his his final months and, and the the health issues that he was having and the inability to you know really do anything it it was a a very very sad end it sounded like this was not a complete surprise to anybody that spent a lot of time with him that this was the direction that he was ultimately heading in
0: no i don't think they were surprised and i think it's important to stress that like this kind of goes back to what we were saying a moment ago peter didn't overdose or commit suicide he drank himself to death yeah like the way an old man would like like when Jack Kerouac drinks himself to death, however, how old was Kerouac in his forties uh, when he died? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's young, but I mean, you could drink yourself to death by your forties. To drink yourself to death in your twenties, I mean, like you almost have to like be impressed. Like that's
1: not that's not an easy thing to do. <laughs> no, it's not. That actually takes uh that takes a lot of patience and time and dedication. Right, and I used to have a drinking problem,
0: so like I. I I never got hospitalized and I drank a lot. I had a problem. And, you know, if I was, you know, and he was going to the hospital a lot, I probably should have gotten more into his hospital visits in the book. But there's, I think there's just so many and like, there's not much information. Right. It's just like, yeah, he went to the hospital again. I mean, what are you supposed to say?
1: I've always been fascinated by the whole, you know, rocket from the tombs thing. This is a band that uh, that he was in along with you know Cheetah Chrome and you know Blitz and 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 David Thomas and you know once the band fractured and you know again almost nearly no r- significant recordings when they were together but you know out of this band came these you know iconic anthems you know punk anthems everything from you know Sonic Reducer to Final Solution and you know Thirty Seconds Over Tokyo I mean these are these are massive songs and you have to wonder well what would have happened had rocket from the tombs been able to stay together because i mean it, to me it's just like well you know how how did this even happen that the, that a band like this would exist and all right. of these great anthems would that would be born out of it
0: right and it, well i mean and so they split into uh you know dead boys and pere ubu and you cannot think of two groups that are could be more different right you know they're, so that these personnel, and then you also what Craig did, because then Craig had his band, The Saucers, as well, who should not be discounted. But, yeah, Dead Boys and Per Ubu are just, like, complete opposites. So that these guys were in a band together is – it was almost like they were a super group but did it
1: backwards. You know, one way, um, you know, Per Ubu is kind of like, a, like an art band, whereas the Dead Boys were, like, a, a band that just wanted to break shit.
0: That's the a- Dead Boys were basically, like, a Detroit-style glam rock band.
1: Absolutely.
0: They had the long hair when they were Frankenstein and all that. And they got to New York and saw what was going on and cut their hair. But they were doing like Detroit glam rock, like Alice Cooper, the Stooges, that kind of thing. And the Dead Boys, I think, were a great rock and roll band. Absolutely great, especially that first album. As someone writing, they're a little less interesting to me just because, like, okay, they, they rock, they're great. I don't have much to say about that. While Perubu being artier and my tastes kind of leaning in more a pretentious way in general, <laughs> there's a lot more to examine with Perubu when their lyrics and just the kind of things that David Thomas uh, writes uh, in his, uh, his other writings or things he says in interviews. And he's kind of from like a European avant-garde tradition. And Peter was to a point too. And there's a lot. there's a lot to really dig into there.
1: I think so too and I think you know Thomas is one of those guys who you just always remain somewhat enigmatic. It's like you know you don't really know what's going on with him because the the songs can be so obscure and 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 not always pretty to listen to. But those first couple of albums uh, by Pierre Ubu are amazing. Actually there's a bunch of albums from that band that are amazing. Their discography
0: is a mess because yeah. what happens is the last two albums from their sort of like classic period are really really impenetrable it's like very dada there's a lot of just like kind of like almost like nursery rhyme like just like children noises and like bird noises and i think a lot of people just like they give up and i don't blame them because i don't really like those two those two albums either but then they came back and they had kind of like a pop period that was sort of interesting and then they kind of like returned to their roots and they did some really good stuff And it's just a very, I mean, they're still together. Like, I mean, you know, Thomas is the only original member, but they have so many albums and it really just ebbs and flows. And if you stick it out, it's almost like a a band like Can or The Fall, where there's just this huge imposing body of work. And, you know, I've been a fan for over 20 years and I'm still discovering new stuff. And then there's the live albums because Perubu is a great live band. Yeah. Like the live recordings are often better.
1: I see the connection to the fall. That's actually a really good connection because, on one hand, you know when Marky e. Smith was uh, was writing great songs, it's like you, you can't there's there's no band better. But on the other hand, there's a lot of stuff that really is hard for the average listener to listen to, but it's a really satisfying body of work if you're willing to take the time and have the patience to go through it.
0: Yeah, and then there's I think there's some analogs between David Thomas and Marky e. Smith where you have this. You have this band that really is just this this front man. It's this project. And then the lineup just, you know, changes. We have to say it should be said though that Perubu's lineup later on was actually quite stable for a while. Uh, like, I mean, some of the later members were members way longer than any of the original members were. Uh, like his bass player, Michelle, she might still be with him. I mean, she's been with him since the 90s, you know. So some people stick it out with him.
1: There's a point in the book where Peter Lofner goes to New York and tries to aggressively get, you know, involved in the New York yeah. New York scene. I, I recently interviewed uh, you know Richard Lloyd at television and there's a whole part in in his book and, and uh you know, a little bit in, in, in your book where Lofner tries to replace him in the band. You know, he he had left television for a period of time. Lofner tries to get in there, it, it didn't work, and they wind up getting you know, Richard Lloyd again, but there's also some other stories of uh, of him barely functioning in New York. You know, trying to get on stage to play with Patti Smith at CBGB's. I mean, yeah, you know, at that point when he is trying to at least, I don't know if he's trying to legitimize himself in front of in, in in New York or what he's trying to do, but he just wasn't together enough to make any of that happen. And it sounds like New York was probably a pretty big embarrassing traumatic experience for him.
0: I don't I mean I th- I think he was from what I've heard he was pretty humiliated about that incident at uh, the Patty Smith concert but he made friends in New York he and he brought uh television and the heartbreakers to Cleveland yeah. for their first shows outside of New York. So I mean they obviously were like listening to him they're like oh okay you you say something's coming up, going on over here Ah, uh, you you know, you'll put put together a show. you know they they followed him out. and, um he, you know, he hung out. He hung out with those people. he he knew them. I'm sure, and they all had their drug problems too, yeah. and you know, Lester banks certainly took him seriously. They were, you know, best friends
1: but but Lester also kind of knew where he was coming from and said, you know, this guy is he is a legitimate guy. He kind of had that stamp of approval, and yeah, it's a shame
0: Peter did go to New York a lot. But he only performed there once with perubu Ubu. Yeah. Um, but I don't think Ubu would have gone without without Peter. You know, I think David Thomas had kind of like a "fuck New York" kind of attitude, which is common <laughs> in Cleveland.
1: It's it's common through all the Midwest cities. Fuck Fuck New yeah. York should yeah. be like on on the on billboards and T shirts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. One of the things that you did in the book that I thought was really kind of cool was the use of the lyrics from the uh, the song. You know, life stinks. You know, whether it's life stinks, I need a drink. It runs throughout uh, the entire book, and it sums up a couple of things. I mean, one, the the, the mess of of <laughs> of Peter's life uh, on one hand, but it also illustrates kind of that inferiority complex that runs through the city of Cleveland. And, and I thought the relevance of including that in in a lot of the illustrations was actually really an appropriate you know inclusion. I mean, tell me about the decision to to do that. I mean, did you did you think about that? You know, early on in this process, or was it kind of something that said, "You know, then maybe I can add like one more thing here."
0: It just so the the book's early stages, like um, the book began with like a much more kind of nihilistic perspective. You know, it was yeah. a little bit more like celebrating like the death tripping, and those inelegant "Life Stinks" lyrics kind of like just fit that really well, but like I worked on this book a long time and I got older and I realized like, this is like, I'm working on this for a very, very long time. Do I want to spend years and have my message be fuck you? And I was like, maybe, you know, (laughs) maybe I should add a little more to this. Uh, and I believe I did, but the whole life stinks refrain, uh, stayed. And I'm glad it did because it's as blunt and dumb as it is. It gets it
1: something succinct, and with and there's some irony there. Oh, absolutely, but in, but it's an appropriate inclusion. You know, it ties it. It really does tie everything together. You know, his own lyrics. You know, the whole storyline, the history. You mentioned Devo, and you mentioned uh, you know Akron, and you know the influence that that uh, that they had with things like, you know Kent State. You're absolutely right. There would be no Devo without. Without Kent State, but that, like so many other things you know, in the book, appear to be you know, really important points in Ohio's history and how you know psychologically people react to their own backyard and their own self point of view. It 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 had this enormous effect to the point where I think anybody that had been on Kent State or you know, was living there at the time, have always been deeply affected by by what happened there.
0: Sure, sure. And growing up, you'd hear like, you know, like you'd hear like, oh yeah, you know, like when you're, when our history teacher, he was at Kent State or like so-and-so's mom was there or like, you know, I mean, like it was, it was real, you know? So you'd hear about it growing up and it was just sort of like, kind of like, God, what the fuck happened over there? You know, it was just awful.
1: I think over the last couple of years, people are finally understanding uh, you know, not, I mean, not only is Chrissy Hine from from Akron, and and she was, you know, also a student at the time, from uh, from everything from like that Sex Pistols miniseries that uh, that came out uh, like last year or the year before, I think people are finally starting to realize the con- the connectivity that Chrissy has through not just uh, American music, but you know what she was involved in when she went to to London, if there was ever anybody whose life story would be unbelievable to be told, it would be hers. I mean, her, her life story is just absolutely fascinating to me.
0: I read her book, uh, reckless. It's good. Yeah. And, uh, I think when I started out, I planned on having more of her and the pretenders in the story, uh, which just kind of just didn't happen. I don't know why.
1: Because you're 428 pages into it already,
0: right? Yeah, I could have just gone forever, <laughs> and I didn't want to. I didn't want to make it specifically just about rock bands. Yeah, you know, I wanted to talk about like the Beatnik poetry scene in Cleveland, and I wanted to talk about you know the industrial stuff, and, um, and then I, you know, it's like that. I'm talking about Elliot Ness. I, I don't I'm not entirely even sure why, but it just felt like the right thing to do. Yeah,
1: well, I mean, it again, it all it all fits into a larger. A larger picture one of the things that that you did you know, talk about and i'm glad you did because it's a really important component in understanding you know music over the last you know 50 years fanzines and 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 rock journalism you you mentioned you know lester banks and cream magazine but uh, you didn't even talk about you know our crumb in the uh, in the book too you know the importance of these these do-it-yourself you know magazines as far as getting people to understand the music that was coming out in 1976 1977 I mean, it's these really were essential, uh, you know, publications for people in learning about what was going on, you know, beyond their own backyard.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was like the internet, and this is so. This is interesting, and I kind of wanted to get into it in the book, but I just ran out of space, especially in part three. But you know, um, the old zine, "Search and Destroy." Yeah, yeah. From San Francisco, there's a lot of Cleveland stuff in there, so I was always kind of like, you know, what, what's this all about? Well, as it turns out, so. The punk record store here in Cleveland was called Drome. I talk about them a little in the book, and they carried Search and Destroy, and and then the Cleveland fanzine, which was called Clee. There's all sorts of features and ads for these various San Francisco bands, and like what's going on here. So it turns out that basically the stuff that was in search and destroy about Cleveland was actually like written by people in Cleveland. And they were just like, they were almost like foreign correspondents. <laughs> so between these two fanzines, they were kind of telling each other like, well, what's going on. So you could get San Francisco records in Cleveland and you can get Cleveland stuff from San Francisco. And it was just this kind of like slow motion, uh, exchange of ideas and information. And I think that's really neat. And you, cause you can see the trail they left behind in, in these magazines.
1: You know, I mean, I've been doing radio for 30 some odd years, and it's always funny to me when someone says, hey, there's no good music coming out anymore. You can't find it. You know, no one hears. You know, hear you know, there's all these bands I've never heard of. And I keep reminding them that, you know, you know, finding out about new music has always required a bit of effort, you know, regardless of where it was, whether it was you know talking to the guy at the record store about what's about what you like and, you know, what's coming out or what's out right now or fanzines. Or, you know, even if it's Rolling Stone, for that matter, it always requires some level of effort to find out, well, what's really going on? And I think, like you said, it's, it's kind of like the Internet. I mean, it really was kind of like a social media before that ever happened. And it really informed a lot of people's, you know, palate of, of uh, uh, taste in music. I mean, they, they served so, such an important role. Not so much because people were reading them, but it influenced your next door neighbor, and then you learned about what he was listening to, and it just it's like a big giant, you know, Amway pyramid of 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 information right. and and then you know education.
0: Yeah, right. You know, people complaining about there not being good music. People do the same thing with books. Oh, there's no good books anymore. Yeah, there are. They're from smaller publishers. You're not going to find them in, in Borders. Yeah, you might not even find them in any stores. But there's been a real renaissance of like uh small presses uh putting out, because they're just the publisher, the big publishers do suck. They are putting out the same old crap. And but there's people are responding to that, and there's like definitely a DIY thing going on, even though people don't necessarily talk about it in those terms. And like the, like the media, but they don't they don't get reviewed. This like distributors don't pick it up, so the stores don't pick it up. Well, that doesn't mean it's not happening. You just have to kind of look for it.
1: Well, I want to ask you a little bit about that because I mean, you're the co-founder of, of Stone Church Press, which is a it's a relatively new company. I, th- I think you started it yeah. like last year, maybe the year before. I mean, it's a it's a pretty yeah. new new company. But the you know what you've put out, I mean, you visually beautiful books, and, and and yours is no exception. I mean, I I, I love the illustrations that uh, that were put into this, and I think you know self-publishing this it's a it's a big ask to put up to something that's taking you this long to do. but everybody else is doing DIY businesses now and you know why wouldn't you do it?
0: Yeah. so I started Stone Church Press with my friend Jake Kelly, who's also an artist and a writer. And you know, I thought it would be a small operation in which we could just kind of sell our own like mini comics or just like things we wanted to do. And because I had an agent, and I wanted to get "Ain't It Fun" put out by a a big, a big publisher, you sure. know, I wanted it in distribution and just done right. And my and you know, my agent couldn't sell it; nobody wanted it. And hmm. I could have now, mind you, I probably could have found a smaller publisher that would would have taken it. But at that point, I'm a smaller publisher. Why? So why should I give it to someone else <laughs> at the same size? Right. And. And I'm glad we started Stone Church, what well, we did, because we had, it's hard, you know, and just like, there's a real learning curve. So we were already, we had the website set up, we knew it worked, you know, we had a business bank account, we had a shipping system set up, we uh, got hooked up with a distributor. So we were kind of ready to go. But this was our definitely been our biggest project to date. But it still started from square one with the book this size, and I don't just mean the size of the book, but I mean, the size of the print run, and the publicity and everything we would have been just it over our head but we yeah. had a nice trial run of a year of selling smaller books to get ready
1: well i mean it's like i said it, it's a it's an amazing story not only just of of, of peter lofner but you know, really kind of understanding about ohio and about cleveland and about you know the role of the place i mean you're, I mean, you're talking about you're talking about everything from you know Alan Freed to the Raspberries to Devo to, you know, Pierre Ubu, you know, all of this is going on. It's a really substantially rich region that so much great music has come out from. And to understand any of it, you know, this is like one of the first books I've read that even addresses what really went into Cleveland and its reputation for, for rock and roll.
0: Right. Yeah. It's not just me being like navel gazing, like, oh, I live in Cleveland. Let me write about Cleveland. But like Alan Freed, the, like the term rock and roll was coined here. So there's are very legitimate reasons to explore this in depth. Like it's not just like a regional interest book. This is a book that anyone could find interesting. You know, like people who don't live in New York like to read about CBGBs and the love of underground and what was going on there. And I think some of the the publishers, though, they're in New York, and they're like, "Oh, Cleveland, you know, pass." <laughs> you know, they're, they're elitists. Well,
1: I'm I'm sure you remember this. You know, when the uh when the Hall of Fame was being planned in uh, in Cleveland, and and there were all these people saying, "Cleveland, why of all places? Why is it in Cleveland?" And and the history of rock and roll is you know Cleveland plays a huge part in that, and you know those that you know did any you know, historical research or understood the story behind it said, okay, it does, it does make sense, but I'm pretty sure most of America doesn't realize, you know, how deep it goes in Cleveland.
0: So you're, 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 you're half right. There is like a uh, legitimate cultural claim to why we have the rock and roll hall of fame. Uh, Alan free, just being part of that. But what it really comes down to in reality is Cleveland wanted it. Yeah. And they fought to have it. New York didn't care. New York, the the, the people in charge of zoning commissions and whatever in New York, they don't they don't need another museum. They don't need to (laughs) boost tourism. They had they had no skin in the game. But the the people in political influence and power in Cleveland saw an opportunity. And so they fought and campaigned to get the Rock Hall, you know, smartly, I suppose. Yeah, people, people visit. They talk about it. People say, I went to the Rock Hall my dad loved it you know it's always like their dad uh it's a nice it's a nice museum it really is uh and they have a fantastic archive which i made use of in my research a fantastic archive as far as the hall of fame itself and who gets inducted i don't i don't give a shit and when people like complain they're like why why is so and so in and why why is it so and so i'm like well you why are you paying it it's like you get it's like the Academy Awards. I don't care. I don't need some, like, cool independent film I like to get best picture. Right. Just, like, I don't need the fall to be recognized by the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. It's it's absurd to me. But
1: I know, I'm but I, sure. I, I think people get, you know, so passionate about the bands that they love and they would like, to, you know, that, that there's a part of them that would like to see somebody else acknowledge and validate that feeling over over a particular band. But I agree with you. Ultimately, it, it's, it's, it's not that important whether you know, Joy Division gets in someday or doesn't get in. But it's just it's it's just funny how so many people take it so seriously and, and, I don't and get so it. passionately.
0: Yeah, it just seems like boomer beetle fans. But, but <laughs> then the, the punk people do it. You see the like why is, is Devo even in now? I don't even remember. I, I remember like people really bent about Devo not getting in.
1: Yeah. I don't know. I actually I don't even I don't believe they are. But yeah,
0: I don't know. I know they got nominated.
1: Yeah, I just I just don't know if they, they want. I mean, I think what people what really pisses people off is just this uh like the, the political parts of excluding, you know, some people that probably should be in and then you know turning a blind eye to people that probably have no business being in there. I think that drives people a little a little batshit. Everybody- well it's funny you look at like
0: the early history of it and they're like always putting in these like obscure, now obscure, like doo-wop and like early rock and roll groups that no one knows now because it's like well these people were really important when they were doing this right and they are hall of famers but then like you know that doesn't put that doesn't make any money or generate enthusiasm (laughs) and so it's a lot a lot of a lot of the times these are like black groups uh so they're and some there's some very deserving early groups (laughs) that have been ignored just because it's not Fleetwood Mac and there's no how do you how do you trump it up into uh, something that makes money? <laughs>
1: I've I've been in the Hall of Fame twice. The first time we got caught in a uh, in a blizzard in Buffalo, and we got to Cleveland with like thirty five minutes before the Hall of Fame closed. And so, so you know that you start at the top of the building and you work your way down. The first time I saw it, I saw the uh, the entire museum in exactly twenty two minutes. <laughs> it's like a like a sprint down you know down the stairs to make sure. I said, okay, I. I saw it, I was here, it's time to get back in the car and go. It's not that big. No, it's not. But when you do have the opportunity to stay, you know, for a good period of time, there's a lot of really great stuff inside of it. There is there is some
0: interesting stuff in there for sure. I kind of hate the building, even though I like the architect, I am paid. Uh, but I yeah, I think that building's a real eyesore. I digress. <laughs>
1: Well, Aaron, this has been uh, really cool. Like I said, I've, I've enjoyed the book a lot, a- Ain't It Fun? And uh, I wish you best of luck with it and, and, and other projects because I think, you know, what you're doing is really very cool. Thank you. Aaron, thank you very much for the time today. Appreciate it.
0: Yeah, it was my pleasure.
1: The name of Aaron Lang's new book is called Ain't It Fun? Peter Lawfer and Proto-Punk in the Secret City, published by Stone Church Press, and it is awesome. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, feel free to like it, share it, rate it, tell all your friends about it, and be sure to check out the latest updates on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok. You can also email me at VaxRock102.com. I'd love to hear what you think. And Thanks again for listening to Vaxi's musical podcast.